Okay. Um, this doesn't seem right, but uh, having trouble finding that focal point. You'll know about that soon, Debbie. A few more birthdays. A few more birthdays. Okay, I'm thinking that Abraham Lincoln, everybody know who Abraham Lincoln is, right? Um, I'm thinking that he will like, most probably would like my sermon tonight. This is what he said about preaching. I don't like dispassionate sermons. When I hear a man preach, I like to see him act as if he were fighting bees. <clears throat> I already know exactly what that looks like, but um, I feel like I'm fighting bees sometimes, okay? So this could be a bee-fighting sermon. I'm going to try to keep myself under control, but I'm not going to make any promises, okay? Um, any of you, were any of you here February 6, 2005? I bet you were here. You guys were here in 05? 05. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, we'll work with you guys on the calendar, on the dating system. Right. Uh, that's when I started preaching in John. Now, we've done some stuff in between, okay? So it's not as bad as it sounds, but this will be my 67th sermon on the Gospel of John. And some, say, some will say, well, that's overkill. And I would have to respectfully disagree. Uh, as I told the congregation back on February 6, 2005, that while the Greek vocabulary and grammar in John is on a fourth grade level, the theology is unfathomable. The theology is gorgeous. The theology is beautiful. I could have done 67 sermons on the first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ, or John introduces Jesus Christ to us, so there's no misunderstanding about who that babe in the manger is, and who that boy in the temple is, and who that preacher on the mount is, and who that man on the cross is. It's one reason we've been in John as long as we have. When John talks about that beginning, he's not talking about Genesis 1-1 beginning. He's talking about a different beginning. He's, he's reaching back into eternity past. And in other words, John is saying, before the beginning began was the Word. As one theologian put it, from in the beginning of the beginnings which never began was the Word, was Jesus Christ. He is the Eternal One. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the Eternal God. John Piper said it right. If we're thinking biblically about Jesus Christ, our minds will be perpetually blown. And he's right about that. And that's one reason that I'm on my 67th sermon in the Gospel of John. I have to confess, I am in awe. I am in awe of this God that John is writing about and telling us about. And oh, by the way, verse 3 of John chapter 1 tells us what? He's the Creator God. All things were created by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There's maybe another 67 sermons right there. Okay. As many of you know, I don't do sermonettes. We don't do sermonettes at the International Church of Milan. I cannot do a sermonette. I can't do three jokes, two funny illustrations, and a poem, 
I am way in too much awe of Jesus Christ to stand up here and do that for you. I just cannot do that. I, I'm in awe of Jesus Christ. And that's why sometimes it gets into like a bee fighting thing with me. And it's, how can you not be in awe of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, what John, just simply what John tells us, it's breathtaking. Who he is, what he's done, what he's offering you and I, it's absolutely breathtaking. Someone said rightly about sermonettes, the problem with sermonettes is they what? Does anybody know? I think Vance Havner said this. The problem with sermonettes is they produce Christianettes. Okay? They produce Christianettes. Jesus didn't do sermonettes, and he didn't commission us to make Christianettes. Jesus preached the Word of God. He preached the whole truth, and he commissioned us to what? To go and do what? Make disciples. Now, what do disciples do? Disciples actually do the Word. Okay? So we're not Christianettes in here. We're not playing religion. We're not playing religion. We're going to be disciples. We're really going to do the Word. That's what we're about at ICM. Doing the Word. So we don't have time for, for sermonettes, but we'll take all the time we need to be still and know that He is God. Jesus Christ is God. That's why I'm on my 67th sermon. The Gospel of John is it's a bee-fighting kind of book. And I don't know how you cannot read the Gospel of John and your heart almost explode when it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and His great love for us. And I told you last October, last time I was in John, that John holds him up and he simply says, see how beautiful he is, see how stunning he is, see how spectacular he is, see how magnificent he is, see how wonderful he is, see how incomprehensible he is, how awesome he is, and how breathtakingly desirable he is. This is what John does. He just holds up Christ and he says, look. Look at Jesus Christ. And that's why we're in our 67th sermon on the Gospel of John. That's why we're lingering and savoring this beautiful revelation of our beautiful, beautiful God. You know why, friends? You know why I want you to see Jesus Christ? You know why I want you to get this long, hard look at Jesus Christ? You know what happens when you get a true look at Jesus Christ? You know what happens in your life? Your life will change. You will begin to think like the men and women of Hebrews 11 that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And your heart will begin to feel like their heart felt. Because you'll see this beautiful God and you will want Him and you will desire Him and you will pursue Him and you will obey Him. Right? This is what happens when God's people get a long look at Jesus Christ. What does the song say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and what? It's really true. What? Look at Jesus and what? The things of earth will grow strangely dim. Brothers and sisters, if the things of earth are not growing more and more and more strangely dim, you are not looking at Jesus Christ. Your eyes are somewhere else. Your heart is somewhere else. If the things of the world are not growing increasingly dim, you are not looking. You are not looking at Jesus Christ. You are not looking into His wonderful face because when you do, 
you get that whole strangers and exiles kind of thing in your mind, like the men and women of Hebrews 11. Strangers and exiles upon the earth. Okay, when we left John 17 last October, we had just begun um, the chapter, and I think it's really important that we reacquaint ourselves with the first five verses, so all I'm going to do tonight is review. Some of you guys have already heard this stuff, but it's, it's so important, it's so vital, it's so foundational. You can't just jump into the middle of John 17. You can't do it. I tried to do it. It's ministerial malpractice. You've got to understand what the first five verses say or you're lost in the rest of the chapter. So I think it's profitable for us to go back and just do a brief review of the first five chapters. I told you last October that John 17 is like a scriptural Everest. We're standing on lofty and holy ground. We're listening in on intra-Trinitarian communication. The Son is praying to the Father and the veil is drawn back and we get to hear these unimaginably beautiful things that the Son says to the Father. Okay? And last, I told you back in October, Jesus, as Nelson mentioned, Jesus was teaching his guys for the last three chapters. He finishes up in John 16, 33, and without a break, uh, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. And he begins to pray audibly because he wants his 11 guys to hear what he's going to say to the Father about them. And guess what else? He wants you to hear what he's going to say to the Father about you. And we talked a lot about this. The first thing he says is, Father, the hour has come. What hour is it that has come? The hour that all previous hours and subsequent hours pointed to. The hour that informs all other hours. The hour that is the, the pivot and the apex of eternal and temporal history. Okay? It's the hour that is the most important hour in timeless eternity. The hour that the sovereign, omnipotent, eternal creator God will allow his puny little creatures to nail him to a cross. The hour has come that the Son of God will become the Lamb of God. I told you it was breathtaking. If it's not breathtaking to you, you're not understanding You're not getting it at all if that's not breathtaking to you. That the sovereign, omnipotent, eternal creator God will allow men to nail him to a cross. And all I can say is, as I said back in October, let all the created order stand in awe of this awesome God. Who knew that he could love like this? Who knew that this God could love like this? What God can love like this? That His body would be broken and His blood would be spilt for His people. This almighty, omnipotent, awesome God will be nailed to a tree. I think I told you it was breathtaking. Then Jesus prays. He says, Glorify Thy Son that Thy Son may glorify Thee. So in this hour of horror and mutilation and agony and death, how is their glory? Well, if you've thought much about the cross, you understand 
that the cross is like a multifaceted diamond. Every time you turn it, you see another angle of its beauty. You see another facet of its beauty. You turn it one way, you see the wrath of God. You turn it another way, you see the grace of God. You turn it one, another way, you see the judgment of God. You turn it another way, you see the compassion of God. The compassion of God. You turn it another way and you see the holiness and the righteousness of God. You turn it another way, you see grace and mercy. All of the fullness of God is on display in the cross. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify you. All the fullness of God is on display at the cross. This is what Jesus is talking about. Verse 2, he says, Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. I want to say two things about verse 2 in passing. One is, what does it say? That he's been given all authority. Jesus Christ has been given all authority. He doesn't have partial authority. He's been given authority. All authority. He is God. He has no peer. He has no colleague. He has no equal. He stands alone. He's God. He's I am. He's I am. I shared this with you back in October, but I'm going to share it with you again. I love this litany in Isaiah uh, where, where God says, I'm God and you're not. And I just want you to remember, I want you to remember who that babe in the manger is. Okay, and who that boy in the temple is and who that, that preacher on the mount is and who that man is on the cross. Okay, this is who it is. These are his words. He says, I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he before me. There was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no one beside me. I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. I am the Lord. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. To whom will you liken me that I should be His equal? For I am God and there is no one like me, says Jehovah. Man, that's worship provoking. (laughs) Is that not worship provoking? That's the man, that's the God man that will be nailed to a tree for our sins. I just don't ever want us to lose sight of that fact. And you can mark it down, brothers and sisters. Paul, I mean, pardon me, John tells us in Revelation 5, 13, the day is coming quickly when every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them will do what? Bow down. To this awesome God. This awesome God that was nailed to a tree for my sin to redeem me. The second thing I want to point out in verse 2 is that it says, Jesus says that to all whom thou hast given me. This is so critically important that we hear this and understand this again tonight. As I mentioned back in October, this is simply a reiteration of what Jesus has said three times clearly already in the Gospel of John. John 6:37, he says, "All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out." John 6:39, and this is the will of the Father that all He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. John 10:29, "My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out 
of the Father's hand. I want you to hear two things here because Jesus is just going to keep saying this all the, way, all the way through John 17. Jesus is just going to keep calling you and me gifts from the Father. And we need to understand this. Or we're not going to understand John 17. Okay? There's two beautiful truths here. All who are in Christ are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And I know I've preached this to you before, but this is an awesome, this is a breathtaking truth that all who are in Christ are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And I want you to hear too that in this, in this lies your eternal security. In this lies your eternal security. Jesus says, uh, John 6.37, John 6.39, John 10.29, about all these gifts that the Father gives Him, Jesus says, I will not lose one of them. Not one. Not one. I will not lose any of them. And I want you to, I want you to get that. Jesus wants us to get that because He's going to say it five times. He's going to call you and I gifts from the Father. He's going to say it five times. He said it no less than eight times in the Gospel of John. This is something that He wants you and I to understand. We are in on intra-Trinitarian communication. We are hearing the divine counsels of God regarding human salvation. Okay? Friends, this is lofty and weighty stuff. This is worship-provoking stuff. This is breath-taking stuff. It's a big deal between the Father and the Son. It's a big deal, and He wants you to know it's a big deal. That's why He says it eight times in the Gospel of John. Eight times. So the genuine believer, the born-again believer, is a loved gift from the Father to the Son. And Jesus says, I'll lose none of them. And i got to say, there's another 67 sermons in there. Okay, I don't think you would... Let me get away with it, but I know there are. There are another 67 sermons in there. And God wants you to know this. And He wants you, friends, He wants you to love this. And He wants you to live this. When you understand your security is in the Godhead, you can be fearless. You can be fearless before the Lord and before the world. I told you back in October that, that uh, some teach that, that men that true Christians, true converted born-again Christians can lose their salvation. And I, I think I politely said, they don't know what they're talking about. Okay? They simply do not know what they're talking about. They have not rightly divided the Word of God. A born-again believer can never become an unborn-again believer. It will never happen. And it will never happen for one simple reason. Jesus says, I'll never lose one of them, ever. I'll never lose one. We're too precious in His sight. We are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. And Jesus says, I'll never let go of any of them. Not one. Not one. And I could give you a lot of other doctrinal and theological reasons, but that's, that's a big one right there. Okay? So if you've been taught you can lose your salvation, I want to challenge you from the Word of God that you cannot. You cannot. A genuine born-again believer cannot lose their salvation. That is, that is a wrong teaching. That is not scriptural. Next thing, uh, see, and I want to look right here. It's in the text. What does Jesus say? All whom thou hast given me, what? I give them eternal life. He gives them eternal life. It's the free gift of God. He gives eternal life. This is what the Son gives to His people. He gives eternal life. 
And our, our eternal security is in the Godhead. It's in understanding what has taken place between the Father and the Son. And again, Jesus is going to say it four more times. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. I mentioned this in October. You know, men in religion will tell you that, that salvation lies in 101 things. You know, you can just pray this prayer. You can just do this ordinance, or you can go on this pilgrimage, or you can chant this thing, or you can uh, do this, or you can do that, or you can do 15 other things. But what does Jesus say? Look at the text. What does Jesus say in John 17, 3? What's Jesus' definition of salvation? Knowing God. Knowing God. It doesn't matter how many sacraments you've partaken of or how many rules you've kept or how many things you've chanted or how many prayer your prayers you've prayed. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. You are not. This is God's definition Himself. That they may know Thee. So let me ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? And let me give you the definition here, this word know. Uh, the Greek lexicon kind of uh, fills it out for us. It doesn't mean to just know about Jesus Christ. It means to be acquainted with Him. Okay? It means to know Him through personal experience. It means to have personal knowledge of Him. And you know, I, I shared this back in October, you know, uh, you know what the, the Jewish ear hears when he hears that word, no, right? You know what he hears. It's an idiom, it's a Jewish idiom for sexual intimacy. So when, when they hear Jesus say that, they understand what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about spiritual intimacy with God Himself. This is what Jesus is talking about. That is Christianity. Anything less than that is false and a lie. Okay? Intimacy with God. Intimacy with Jesus Christ is biblical Christianity. We are to be acquainted with God and to have experience with God and to know God. I've shared this with you when people ask me as a pastor, Jim, how can I, how can, uh, how can I be sure I'm a Christian? And, I'll, and I always give the same answer. Uh, it's very simple. You'll love Christ. You'll love Him. I mean, that's as simple as you can get, right? If you're a Christian, if you're really a born-again believer, if you belong to Him, you will love Him. And how will your love be authenticated? How is the believer's love authenticated? Obedience. That's the biblical test for love for God. It's obedience. Not that any of us obey perfectly, but that is the test for loving God. Obedience. If you love Me, you will... Do my commandments. You will keep my commandments. Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. And the other thing I want to bring out from verses 4 and 5 and 6 is what we talked about back in October. Another theme, major theme in, in, the, in the chapter 17 is the glory of God. Jesus will use the term eight times in His prayer. He uses it uh, five times in the first five verses. He's talking about the glory 
of God. He's talking about Him glorifying God. Look at verse 4. I glorified Thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which Thou hast given me to do. And if we look at a Greek lexicon, we see that what Jesus means there is Jesus is saying, by my life I have extolled the Father. I have magnified the Father. I have celebrated the Father. I have honored the Father. I have adorned Him with luster. I have clothed Him with splendor. I have rendered Him excellent in the eyes of men. I have made Him renowned on the earth. And I have revealed His dignity and His worth and His beauty. And you know what, brothers and sisters? Every time we pray that we might glorify uh, the Lord in our lives and every time that we, we say we're going to glorify the Lord in our lives and every time we sing that we're going to glorify the Lord in our lives, that's what we're supposed to be thinking. We're supposed to be thinking that my life will extol the Father. It will extol and magnify Him and celebrate Him and honor Him and adorn Him with luster and clothe Him with splendor and render Him excellent and make Him renowned and to reveal the dignity and worth and beauty of our God. That's what it means to glorify God. Are you doing that in your life? Are you glorifying God in your life? We've been talking a lot about the men and women of Hebrews 11 over the last year, and they got that. They got it. They got it. That's why their lives looked like they looked, because they were living to the glory of God. Okay? That's why their lives were so extraordinary. So let me ask you, is Jesus renowned in your life? Does your, is Jesus famous in your life? Does your spouse know? Do your children know? Do your, your friends know? Do your extended family know? Do your neighbors know that He's your God? Do they, do they see Him in your life? Do they hear Him in your words? That's what Jesus is talking about in, in John 17.4. He says, he says uh, I glorified Thee on the earth, friends. That's our job right there. That's our job. From this day and every day you have left, every day you have left between now and the time you leave this planet, that's your job. To glorify the Lord to magnify and extol Him and to honor Him and to make Him excellent in the eyes of men. So, I don't preach sermonettes. In the first place, God is too big to preach sermonettes. He's too awesome. He's too beautiful. I can't do it. I, I simply can't do it. The, the second reason I don't preach sermonettes is because of you. It's because I want to preach Him so big that you can't stand to live small anymore. If you're still living small, I want to preach Him so big that you can't live that way anymore. That you get a notion. You get a notion. A notion like the men and women of Hebrews 11 that He really is God. That He really is worth believing and trusting and following. That He's worthy to live for and yes, He's worthy to die for. I want you to get a notion in your mind. That's why I preach Him big. Because I want us as a church and as individuals to get this notion that He is an awesome God and I want us to get to the place where extravagant obedience is the norm. Okay? Extravagant obedience is the norm. It's not some 
special thing we did one time. It is the way we live. It's the way we live. We magnify Him every day. We make Him renowned every day. We make Him excellent in the eyes of men every single day for the few days we have left on the planet. Friends, I keep telling you, and I know, I know you believe me. I know you believe me, but, you know, <laughs> you're a vapor. You will stand before God in a heartbeat or two. It's, it, this is what the Bible tells us. And how do you want to spend every day between now and then? Friends, I want to exhort you to spend it extravagantly following Jesus Christ. That's why this is the 67th beef-fighting sermon of John, of the Gospel of John. And I'm going to end this, the 66, this 67th sermon just like I ended the 66th sermon. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I'm going to invite you to come to him. And I'm going to invite you to begin to live for the first time. Because I've held him up. And if you keep coming back to this church, I'm going to keep holding him up. And I'm just going to keep saying what John says. I'm going to say, look how beautiful he is and how stunning he is and how spectacular he is and how magnificent he is and how awesome he is and how breathtaking he is and how incomprehensible he is. I'm going to hold him up and I'm going to say, there's your Lord and Savior. Run to him. Come to him and live. You have no life apart from Jesus Christ. You have none. Now you can exist you can breathe in and out, but you have no life. And then for you, Christian, I'm going to say the same thing I said on my 66th sermon. I'm going to say to you, look, look, believer, look how beautiful he is. Look how stunning he is. Look how awesome he is. Look how magnificent he is. Look how incomprehensible he is. Look how wonderful he is. He is. Then I'm going to say to you, Christian, obey Him with glad, reckless joy for the rest of your life. And brothers and sisters, as we go through John 17, I, I really hope you can, can, can come and be here with us as we go through John 17. It's a life, John 17 is a life-changing experience if you wrap your mind around all that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. Okay? It's simply a life-changing experience. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this awesome text. Father, we thank you that you, you are incomprehensible, that you are beautiful, that you are stunning, that you are spectacular, that you are magnificent, that you are breathtakingly desirable. And Father, we have inherited all things in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are co heirs. Oh God, help us not to live that small. Help us to live like we really are adopted into the family of God and like we really believe that we are co-heirs. Father, I pray that you will help each one of us to magnify Christ in our lives, to extol Him, to make Him beautiful and excellent in the eyes of the unbelieving world. And oh God, we will continue to pray this year. We will pray all year long, O oh God. We will pray that You will send 
your Holy Spirit down and that we will have a God-sent revival in this church and in this community. Father, we pray that you will fall on Milano and that thousands will come to you. Thousands will come to you. Father, they'll grow weary of dead religion and they'll want to know Christ. They want to have real life. They will want to know you. Oh God, we pray. We pray you'll come down. Come down, oh God. Come down. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing chorus.